My name is Tommy Allen and welcome to the virtual ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. Before we continue, I just remind you that we are meeting in person these days at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings at our church facility. We'd love to have you as soon as you are comfortable or able to visit with us. So with all of that said, we are continuing in our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible. I believe today is number 32, and the title of this sermon is Treasure Hunt. It is about the man who finds treasure in the field, believe it or not. Before we begin, I thought I would lead us in a confession of sin, the same one that we're doing actually in person right now, and then afterward we will jump into the sermon. So the confession of sin, if you want to follow along, it's in the description below. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are indeed the only shepherd, and we, sorry to say, are lost and straying sheep. We are anxious and afraid. Gladly would we be devout and cling to you, our gracious God, and so have peace in our hearts. We learn that you are more zealous for us than we are for you. We are eager to know how we can come to you for help. Passionately you desire above all else to bring us back to yourself again. Then come to us, seek and find us. Help us also to come to you and praise and honor you forever. Amen. Now, in person, we take a moment to give you time to confess your sins silently. Um, if you want to pause and do that, you can. Otherwise, I'll just give you this assurance of pardon that if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive them. And he casts them as far as the east is from the west, and he will never hold them against you. And so I say, know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. So this morning's text is Matthew 13, starting at verse 44 through 50. Let me read that to you. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I do pray now that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. I'm going to start this morning with a would you rather question, but I'm going to, I need to set it up a bit. I need to create a bit of context for this question. You see, in January of 2009, uh, some tech gurus introduced uh, into to the common parlance a new digital currency, and the digital currency was called Bitcoin. Now, if you're on the internet at all, you've probably seen talk about Bitcoin. It's sort of all the rage now with hipsters. And so 2009, um, they created this thing called Bitcoin, and basically it was created by um, people solving long, complex problems on their computers. That's how they mined it. And when you got the answer, you were awarded 
Bitcoin. And so there were thousands of these Bitcoins created and they continue to be created to this day. But earlier when it first started, it was a lot easier to find them. And a lot of these tech gurus, these tech nerds, frankly, um, they created thousands and thousands of Bitcoins and they just stored them on hard drives. Now, when Bitcoin came onto the market, um, it was worth about a dollar a piece. In other words, one Bitcoin equaled one dollar. Now, fast forward from 2009 till now. So that's only what, 11 years. Um, as of this recording, Bitcoin is about $48,000 per coin. Okay. So each Bitcoin, $48,000. Now, would you rather, which of these two men, I'm going to describe two men, which of these two men would you rather be? The first man, his name is James Howells. And by the way, this was, both of these stories are from January 15th, 2021, just a month ago, literally. So number one guy, this is from Bitcoin.com. James Howells, an IT engineer mistakenly threw away a hard drive of an old computer containing 7,500 Bitcoins. The coins worth almost 300 million at current prices, actually that's 356 million today, uh, is now in a landfill site in Newport, South Wales. The 35-year-old explained that he threw out the hard drive that contained his Bitcoin private keys in summer 2013 when he was clearing out his desk. After he realized the mistake, he asked the council for permission to search the city's landfill site, but his requests have been denied so far. Okay, so you have 7,500 Bitcoins on a hard drive years ago, and you think, yeah, these things aren't going to ever be worth anything. So you throw it away, and suddenly they're worth $356 million, and you can't get them. And the town council says you can't dig them out of the county landfill. He actually offered, the, the further on the story, he offered the town 25%, $70 million to let him dig. They still won't let him. So would you rather be him or Stephen Thomas? Stephen Thomas is a San Francisco man who lost the password to a thumb drive with $220 million worth of Bitcoin inside. He says he's made peace with the loss. Stephen Thomas has used eight of 10 attempts allowed by a secure thumb drive to reach his 7,002 digital tokens, which are now worth nearly 40,000, update 48,000 a piece and have been minting millionaires left and right and is no closer to reaching his funds. In other words, he has, he put his Bitcoin on a hard drive that gives him uh, 10 attempts. And after 10 attempts, uh, failed attempts, it just erases. And so he's got about $330 million on the, that's actually the thumb drive. And if he tries and misses two more times, it just erases and he loses it. So now he actually, one of these guys, think about these two guys. Now, one guy had this treasure and let's just say um, mistakenly or haphazardly um, th threw it away. Would you rather be that guy, the guy who, who had treasure and mistakenly let it slip through your fingers? Or would you rather be a guy who had treasure and yet couldn't access it? Aren't those both sort of like just crazy like Twilight Zone scenarios. It's like Burgess Meredith and Time Enough at Last, if you're familiar with the, time zone, the Twilight Zone, where he his glasses break and he, he, he can't read any of the books in the library. I mean, it's crazy. Well, which one of those would you rather be? Lose your treasure or not be able to access your treasure? I know what you answered. Neither. 
I wouldn't want to be either of those guys. Is there a way that I can just have my treasure? And I've got good news for you today because today we're going to be talking about treasure of infinite value that is yours for the taking. It's free for you to have. So we're going to look at two things today. We're going to look at two parables that have to do with finding treasure and one parable that has to do with forsaking treasure. And so let's talk about finding treasure for a minute here. All right, finding treasure. So remember the context of these parables. Matthew 13 is basically this whole chapter full of parables. And in these parables, they begin with Jesus talking about the parable of the sower, which is probably familiar to many of you. And the parable of the sower, Jesus is teaching crowds. And the parable of the sower is about a, a farmer and he's throwing out seed, right? And some seed lands on the, uh, on the side of the road and just gets taken away by the birds. And some seed gets... Uh, thrown into rocky soil and springs up quickly, but then it dies. Some seed gets thrown into the thorns and it's choked out. And some seed actually lands in good soil and it produces 60 or 100 fold. And he says that what this parable is about is about the word, it's about the gospel, right? That when the gospel goes out, um, some people just reject it. Some people um, sprout quickly, but then they they wither up and some people are choked out by the cares of this world. And some people it takes and they actually produce 60 or a hundredfold. But the bottom line to, to the crowd and to the disciples is that most seed sowing is unsuccessful. I mean, it, it, in other words, three out of four people, three out of, are, are either gonna reject it or not do well with it. So that's sort of a downer, frankly. And then the next parable that he talks about is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, which is also somewhat of a downer if you're a disciple and you've signed up for this exciting mission with Jesus. And that parable is basically about a farmer planting wheat and then an enemy coming at night and planting weeds in, in the midst of his wheat. And how basically Jesus says it's going to be that way forever, that the wheat are, are sort of the good seed and the weeds are the bad seed, that God plants good seed and Satan always comes along and plants bad seed. And he's talking about the church, right? That in the context of the church, there will be people who are truly converted and who are Christians and other people who aren't, won't be. And, and it'll be that way till the end of time. And you can imagine the disciples going, okay, wow, this just gets better and better. Is there any hope here? Well, I'm guessing Jesus perceives that. He pulls the disciples aside, just the, the inner circle, the, the 12. He pulls them aside. Verse 36 says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he does, but he continues with the parables we look at today. So the parables we look at today are basically this. So they're, they're on one hand, um, they are extremely dissimilar or different. On the other hand, they're extremely alike. But at the same time, which is sort of part of the genius of Jesus. So consider man number one. Um, on one hand, he's poor, or at least he's not wealthy. Look at what verse 44 says. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So this man, what's important to notice about this man is he is not looking for this treasure at all. He just is in a, he, he is in a field and he stumbles across it. He finds it. And 
on one hand, if to our modern ears, like that's like, oh wow, it's like that guy who found all the Viking treasure with his metal detector. That's it's not that. He just stumbled across his treasure because in the ancient Near East they didn't have banks like we do. They didn't have places to secure wealth and and gold and things like that. And so if you wanted to secure your goods, you had to hide them. And if you wanted to make sure they were hidden, you probably buried them. That was pretty common. And imagine, you know, like the, the eighth Mongolian horde is coming in to invade Jerusalem or something and, and you don't know what to do with your wealth. Well, you bury it in the ground. Now, if you get killed, no one knows that your, tr your treasure is buried in the ground. So it, it, it wasn't the thing that happened every day, but it, but it wasn't uncommon for people to find stashes of treasure because that's the way people handled their wealth back in the day. And so this man going through the field, he, he stumbles across his treasure, he finds it. Now, again, to our modern ears, we're thinking, oh, he needs to find out who that belongs to and give it back. According to, to Jewish law, or at least Jewish tradition by the rabbis, um, the Jews basically functioned according to the law of finders keepers when it came <laughs> to treasure like this because it was so tenuous, right? And, and no one knows if that treasure had been there for generations before it had been found. So basically it was finders keepers. This man, he was so joyous, he wanted to make sure that this treasure was his and that no one else could take it away. And so just to be sure, he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy the field so that he can have the treasure in the field. So there'll be no question when, it, when someone says, wow, how'd you get so rich? He said, that field I bought that I own produced this treasure chest, which of course leads to man number two. So let's consider man number two, the second man, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So how is this man different than the first man? Well, the, the first man stumbled across his treasure. He probably wasn't wealthy. He went and sold what he did have. He bought the field and now he owns the treasure and he could live on the treasure, we assume. This man, is wealthy. Pearl merchants in the ancient Near East were wealthy. And you notice what his job was. He, he was a, the king of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So this man's job, his, his life's mission, his work was to find fine pearls. And he says, and who on finding one pearl of great value or a pearl of great price, he went and sold all the rest of the stuff he had and bought it. In, in other words, while the other man stumbled upon his treasure, this man actually was pursuing his treasure. He was looking in different places in hopes of finding the pearl of great price, and he eventually found it. And when he did find it, all the rest of the pearls didn't matter anymore. Just this particular pearl. So the biggest difference between these two is the fact that one stumbled upon the treasure by accident, and the other came upon the treasure after sort of a diligent pursuit of it. Now, this is how, remember, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus and the gospel are at the center of the kingdom of God. That's why the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. So what Jesus is talking about here is, is, is how people come to embrace him, how they come to embrace his message, how they come to see him as the pearl of great price. If you remember throughout the gospels, Jesus is constantly saying to people, what are you going to do about me? You know, what, enough about you. What are you going to do about me? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I am the pearl of great price. He doesn't say that, but it's implied. 
So most people come into contact with Jesus either by stumbling upon him or by pursuing sort of like the truth. They want to find the truth and eventually they end up at Jesus, right? This just reminds me of my own, as I was studying this, my own testimony here. Uh, my, my own testimony was one of stumbling upon Jesus, honestly. I grew up in South Florida. My family never went to church. And when I got to high school, by the time I was a senior, I'd made some friends who happened to be Christians. They invited me to a camp. I went to camp, and on the first night of the camp, the, the, there was a speaker, which I'd never heard someone speak about Christianity, and, and he basically said that uh, there is a God, and you have offended him with the sins that you've committed. Have a nice night, kids. And I remember going out and just like crying, like, and a friend came and said, what's wrong? I said, man, if this is true, I'm just sunk. I didn't know anything. And that person told me about Jesus and told me about the cross. And that night I came across my, this, the treasure, this, the, the pearl of great price that I could be forgiven for my sins and that Jesus w was willing to, to love me and accept me and change me. He, he, he wanted me. And so I begged him to forgive my sins and everything after that changed. But it happened as a result of me stumbling upon I wasn't looking. In fact, that was the last thing I was looking for at that camp, to be honest with you. Now, compare that with someone like um, Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes. Now, Spurgeon is an interesting story because he grew up in a family of preachers, his father and his grandfather. And it's a little bit of a mystery, but at some point he went to live with his grandparents. And... His grandfather apparently had this nice library that was full, like had every Puritan that had ever been published that was in that library and all these theological books. And by the time Spurgeon was 16 years old, he had read all of the Puritans. Most pastors, at least Presbyterian Reformed pastors, have not read all of the Puritans. Most have not even read many of the Puritans. Spurgeon, by the time he was 16, read all of them. And his grandmother wanted him to memorize hymns. And so she said, uh, Charles, I'll pay you a nickel apiece for every hymn you memorize. Well, he memorized so many hymns, he was breaking his grandmother. And so his grandmother basically said, all right, all right, bag it up. I'll give you a penny per hymn. And he memorized hymn books. If you ever read Charles Spurgeon's uh, sermons, which are basically transcriptions, you'll see him just quoting parts of sermons all over the place. And you also hear him tell his testimony about 285 times in the course of his preaching ministry. And what was his testimony. Basically, his testimony was after, by the time he was about 15 years old, he had read all of the Puritans. He had, he had memorized all the hymns. He knew all the words of the gospel, but he didn't know the music. He wasn't converted. His heart hadn't been changed by the gospel yet. He says of himself, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feeling, I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. And so at the age of 15, he decided he was going to go from church to church to church to church to see if there was someone who could tell him how to actually be saved in spite of all this great knowledge that he had. And this is from Christianity Today, this paragraph. It says, because of a snowstorm, the 15-year-old's path led to a church. He was diverted down a sign street. For shelter, he ducked into a primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. An unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit and read this text, Isaiah 45, 52. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Now, 
it says this about Spurgeon. He records his own reaction. It says, he had not much to say. That is the preacher. Thank God for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said to me, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. Then I had the vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a savior Christ was. Now I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. And as snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon I had found. For I was as white as the driven snow through the grace of God. And that says upon his return home, his appearance, his mother caused his mother to exclaim, something wonderful has happened to you. Charles Spurgeon found the pearl of great price, or rather it, it found him. And the pearl of great price found me, and it changed me. It changed Spurgeon. The question that you should ask is this, has the pearl of great price changed you? Has the gospel of Jesus uh, affected your heart? Have you, have you seen it? Have you come across it? Have you seen Jesus and said, I have to have that? before all other things. I mean, think about this. Consider the parable again, um, both of these parables. That in both of the parables, both of the men recognize the value of what they had found, right? The one man that, that saw the treasure, he recognized the value, and the other man saw the pearl, and he recognized the value. And the person who would see the value of that treasure or see the value of this pearl and walked away from it when they had the opportunity to actually have it we would almost necessarily agree that they were fools. Well, the same thing holds true of the gospel. What the gospel of Jesus says is that Jesus has gone to the cross for you and for me. And at the cross, he has exchanged our sin for his righteousness and now freely holds out forgiveness of sins and freely holds out uh, his righteousness for us to possess, that it costs us nothing. Whether we stumble across it or whether we look for it and find it, when we get there, it costs us nothing. I mean, these men sold what they, they had. Now, the, the point is to talk about the value of what is, is being offered here, not necessarily um, that you have to do something for it. Now, will it cost you something? Absolutely. It'll cost you your sin. It'll cost you your selfishness. It'll cost you your lack of humility. All those things. There is a price for becoming a Christian. The question is whether they are worth it for what you get in return. So both of the men recognized the value of what they found. They also determined to have it. Did you notice the men, both of the men took action immediately, right? A lot of us were, were like, well, it would be prudent. I found this chest. I should probably go get it appraised and I should probably do this. I'd probably do that. Maybe I should get a friend to go in with it on me. Maybe I should, should mortgage the property first or maybe I, no. The man who saw the treasure, he understood it for what it was and he immediately took action. The man who saw the pearl, saw it for what it was, and he immediately took action. And the last thing is that they not only, that the action that they took is they, they acquired the treasure or the pearl for themselves. And in other words, there's, there's an individual aspect here that they didn't go out and say, hey guys, I found this pearl. If we all go in on it, you know, it might be a little cheaper. Is they both realized that this was something they personally needed and it was going to take personal will and commitment on their part. And the gospel is the same way, 
right? We can't rely on the fact that our parents are Christians or that our children are Christians to get us into heaven. You know, the, the old cliche, just by, because you sleep in the garage doesn't make you a car, right? Going to church doesn't make you a, a Christian. But in fact, putting your trust in Christ is what makes you a Christian, right? James Boyce says there's three aspects to faith, right? There's an intellectual aspect of faith, and that's where we recognize certain truths. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, there are some truths of the gospel I, I know you recognize. One of them is that you and I are sinful and separated from God. Whether you're a Christian or not, you, you, most people would admit to the fact that they are not perfect, right? But maybe you understand the other truths of the gospel like Spurgeon did, that, that you actually, you recognize the truths. You know the words of the gospel, but you don't know the music of the gospel, right? And so there's an emotional aspect to faith that we are maybe drawn to the gospel maybe we're drawn to christians a lot of people become christians because they're sort of just drawn in they're drawn to christians they're drawn to the christian faith and the beauty of it and all that kind of stuff and lastly there's a volitional aspect to faith so there's intellectual you know the truths there's emotional where you actually are drawn to it you see some beauty in it but then there's the volitional aspect of faith in which we give ourselves over to the gospel. We give ourselves to Christ. We make actually a commitment. We decide to go all in. We decide to, to throw our lot in with Jesus. And the question is, have you done that? Right? Where are you in that scale? Are you, are you only intellectual? Maybe you're just considering it. Or maybe you're considering it and maybe you're drawn in. Wouldn't today be a great day for you to make that jump and actually trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, for you to look to God and all, all the earth and be saved, you know, as Spurgeon heard. Would you be saved today? Might today be the day of your salvation? You see, if it's not, Jesus adds another parable in, uh, to, to these two to, to sort of round them out. So on one hand, you've got the parable of the treasure, you've got the pearl of great price, and that, those are really sort of like, wow, I could have that for myself. That's about finding treasure. But Jesus adds another parable at the end here about forsaking treasure. So let's look at that quickly to finish off here. He says in verse 47, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted out sort of the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So on one hand, right, Jesus says the kingdom of God is, is like this. And he talks about a net that's thrown into the sea, a big drag net that, that is indiscriminate. It just gathers any fish in its path. And then the fishermen go through and they say, that's a good one, that's bad one, that's good, that's bad, that's good, that's bad. And he basically said, that is so it will be at the end of the age. Except at the end of the age, it won't be fishermen sorting the good fish from the bad fish. It will be angels separating the evil from the righteous. Now notice, he didn't say good people or bad people from good people. He used evil and righteous, I think, on purpose. And what does he mean by that? That basically, um, in the end, there's only two kinds of people. There, are, there will be only two kinds of people. Before the judgment throne of God, there will be two kinds of people. There will be evil and righteous. And what is the differentiation between those two? The differentiation is just this. The, the righteous will be those who have found the treasure of the kingdom 
and embrace it. The righteous are made righteous because of the work of Christ on their behalf. In other words, the righteousness that they bear before the throne of God is not their own righteousness, but it is the righteousness of Jesus freely given to them. It is a treasure that they have found and they have wrapped around them. And now as they stand before the throne of God, they can stand with their heads held high, not because of their own goodness, but because of the goodness and righteousness of Jesus, as opposed to the evil who basically say, God, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it according to my own works, or I'm going to do it according to nobody's works. I don't even care about any of it. Well, at the end of the, the age, there is a consequence also for forsaking treasure. We either embrace it or we forsake it. And for those who forsake it, notice the end is, is, is dreadful. He says, it will be the end of the age. Angels separate the, the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I love the way Jesus finishes this with his disciples in verse 51. He says to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. <laughs> like, come on. They're like, um, yeah, they don't want to hear anymore. It's like, yeah, we got it. And we laugh because we think they didn't really understand it. But at the, at the end of the day, do we really understand it? Are we really willing to go all in with Jesus, realizing that there's consequences for not going all in with Jesus? Let me finish with this. Let me read the Jesus Storybook Bible, how they finish this story. It's a little bit more upbeat than my version. Um, it says, Jesus said, coming home to God is as wonderful as finding treasure. You might have to dig before you find it. You might have to look before you see it. You might even have to give up everything you have to get it. But being where God is, being in his kingdom, that's more important than anything else in the world. It's worth anything you have to give up, Jesus told them, because God is the real treasure. God had a treasure too, of course, a treasure that was lost long, long ago. What was God's treasure? His most important thing, the thing that God loved best in all the world? God's treasure was his children. It was why Jesus had come into the world to find God's treasure and pay the price to win them back. And Jesus would do it, even if it cost him everything he had. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would come and you would just enlighten us, that you would give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are willing and able and joyously embrace the gospel of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, at this point in the service, um, we would typically take an offering, but we're not doing that now because of COVID. We have a musical meditation in person, and we have a big box in the back of the church if you want to give that way physically. Obviously, you're watching this. If you want to give, you can find the information in the description to give online. So let me finish by, by reading this confession of faith, profession of faith. And this is the kind of thing you might even want to consider memorizing during the week. So Heidelberg Catechism, question 61, says this. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Answer. Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. It is because only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me righteous before God. And because I can accept this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than through faith. Amen and amen. 
let me send you from this virtual place with this blessing saying that I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Leave this place in the peace of that knowledge. Amen and amen.